Hello and welcome to the Forge Church Catch-Up Podcast. We're delighted that you've chosen to press play on this podcast today. My name is Johnny and I'm part of the teaching team here at the Forge. Each Sunday, our hope and prayer is to provide practical teaching directed by God that ties into everyday life. We hope that today's talk encourages you. Well, hello everybody and welcome. I'm so glad that you decided to join with us today. Aware that with all of the new changes and all of the new challenges, uh, that, that can probably involve a lot more anxiety as well. And so I really want to encourage you to connect in with each other and connect in with us as well online. We miss you and we're really looking forward to being able to get back to normal as soon as we possibly can. But we're starting a brand new series today called This Changes Everything. We had no idea when we wrote that title a couple of months ago that it was probably going to be as impactful as it is in today's uh, situation that everything really has sort of changed for everybody. But on the lead up to Easter, we want to look at three different chapters written by a guy called Luke, who was a doctor at the time of Jesus, one of Jesus's followers. Three chapters that had an event within them that really changed everything for everybody. This changes everything. I wonder if you've thought that phrase at all in the last couple of weeks, whether it's the way you shop or the way in which you speak to people and communicate. We've certainly hit something that's changed everything for a lot of different people. But I'm reminded of the words from a guy called Charles R. Swindle, uh, a pastor from Texas who once said this, maybe you've heard this before, that life is actually only 10% what happens and 90% how you respond to it. Life is 10% what happens, 90% how you respond to it. And maybe if the math's not quite spot on there, I think that says something really significant for us. I think it says that regardless of your current circumstances or our current circumstances, that there's another thing at play. There's our choices, our decisions, our attitudes towards things. And let's face it, actually, there's been a whole bunch of different things we've had to decide and choose maybe differently on. Again, as I say, maybe it's the way you shop or the way you buy or the way you decide to speak to one another. There's another quote that's done the rounds recently online, uh, a quote from Tolkien in one of his Lord of the Rings books. The story goes with the young hobbit Frodo, the underdog, speaking up to this wise wizard Gandalf, almost pleading to him because he knows of this dangerous adventure he's forced to go on. And Frodo says this, I wish it need not happen in my time, says Frodo. So do I, said Gandalf, and so do all who live to see such times. But it is not for them to decide. All we have to decide is what to do with the time that is given to us. Life is 10% what happens, 90% how we react to it. I wonder what decisions you've had to make differently. I know for me in my house, uh, with my housemate Sam, we've kind of had little discussions here and there around things that we really haven't discussed before, around when we need to put headphones in or when we shop or what we're going to buy and that kind of thing. Things that are actually relatively small in comparison to a lot of the choices and the decisions that other people are going to have to start making. Our choices and our decisions tend to come from somewhere. They tend to come from the values that we hold anyway. I mean, think about it for a moment. You know this. If you see somebody who has a really run-down car that's a bit battered and bruised and and doesn't drive very well, but they decide to go on five-star holidays every other year or whatever it looks like, 
chances are that shows what they value and what they value less. Or if you know somebody who uh, has a really highly paid job and they decide to quit that job to go and work for uh, the char- a charity sector or uh, something with a compelling vision to change the world or whatever it looks like, that would probably suggest to you that they have a certain set of values. It shows what they value. The decisions and the choices that we make are often driven by the values that we hold. But there's a problem with that. You see, the things that we might often say that we value often don't equate so much to the decisions that we do make. I mean, think about it for a second. You might say that you value honesty, but when it really comes down to it, when you have to have this really honest conversation with somebody else that's kind of difficult and awkward, actually, maybe you value comfort a little bit more than honesty. Maybe you just value people being honest with you. Or maybe most people would say that they value health. I mean, I would certainly say that I value my health. But then actually, when I look at my diet and how I look, uh, when I look how I exercise, it would kind of suggest that I value a certain type of food and a certain lifestyle actually more than my health. Or maybe you say, like most people I think probably would, that you value other people's needs more than your own comforts. And yet you here only need to look at the empty aisles on the supermarkets recently to recognise that maybe that isn't the case. I mean, maybe you've been going around with your shopping trolley and maybe even understandably you've thought maybe just an extra packet of pasta or an extra packet of whatever. And you're not hoarding anything, but you're just doing the wise thing by taking a little bit extra just in case. The sad reality around all of this kind of thing is that when it comes to our decisions, when it comes to our values, our default is to look inside a lot quicker than it is to look outside. We often look out for ourselves a lot quicker than we look out for other people. And that's seen often through our choices and our decisions. You know, Jesus spoke into this issue right near the end of his life. And this is going to be one of the chapters that we look at from this guy called Luke. And right near the end of his life, He speaks a lesson into the lives of his disciples. I think the words of people uh, who know they're going to die often hold a lot more weight than others. I mean, Jesus never wasted words, but the words that are spoken at the end of a life often hold a lot more weight because they know that they're important. They know they're things that they want people to remember. And near the end of Jesus's life is having this last supper with his friends. And as they're eating, Jesus says something a bit provocative and and he sort of recognises and tells people what's about to come with his own death. And I kind of doubt that his disciples sat around him, fully grasped the magnitude of the situation. Maybe they think it's a metaphor or whatever it looks like. But eventually an argument breaks out around who is the greatest among Jesus's followers. I mean, they're all debating it and saying, no, I'm the greatest, I'm the greatest. Maybe it came about because they were deciding who was going to get the last piece of bread or the last bit of roast lamb or jostling over where they're going to sit. I don't know. They have this argument around who's the greatest. This is what it says. They began to argue among themselves about who would be the greatest among them. Now, chances are that you've never really had that debate in the same way. Maybe you've never argued with anyone around whether you think you're greater than them. I mean, it's kind of arrogant, isn't it? And chances are people would see through it. But whilst we might never argue like this with our actions, I'd be willing to guess that we probably express that through many of our actions. I mean, it's the reason, isn't it, why when we go around supermarkets, there's so many empty shelves. 
Our default action is often to think, me first, we matter most, we're the greatest. I know for me this is true. I mean, when I'm around somebody's house and they give me food and I'm eating with other people, it's a silly example, but, but one that probably expresses something greater within my own heart, I'll instantly kind of look around at other people's plates. Almost instinctively, I caught myself doing it and I realised it's to make sure that I have as much as everybody else, that I haven't been cheated out of anything, that, that I've got what I deserve. It's kind of a small thing and since recognising it, I'm trying to put it right, but I reckon it's probably just one symptom of a larger disease. We often look out for me first, me first, me first. And Jesus speaks right into this. This is what Jesus says. Jesus told them, in this world, the kings and great men lord it over their people. Yet they are called friends of the people. I think what Jesus is saying here is actually that way of thinking, that me first way of thinking, it's pretty normal. I mean, look at the kings of our day, the people we look up to, the celebrities. Actually, sadly, the case is that often the way to get to the top is looking inwards first. And you're reminded that those people are at the top and, and we have a hierarchy of where people fit in terms of value. The sad thing is we live in a culture where the normal is to look out for yourself first and everybody else second. But Jesus goes on to say something different, to say that there is another way of looking at life. But among you, it will be different. Those who are greatest among you should take the lowest rank and the leader should be like the servant. Who is more important, the one who sits at the table or the one who serves? The one who sits at the table, of course, but not here. For I am among you as one who serves. Jesus is offering something different. He says, if you're going to be my follower, if you're going to live in the way that I want you to live, you can't have that attitude. It's not me first, you second. It's everybody else first, me second. That's the way Jesus wants us to think. Not to be at the top of the pile, but to lead by serving. I think this is a, a profound way of thinking, particularly in our situation at the moment. I mean, think about it with me for a second. Think about how a lot of our anxiety and a lot of our fear starts with things like, what if I, or what if my? Anxiety is often fueled by a me first attitude, rather than whatever happens them, whatever happens somebody else. Not only did Jesus teach this, he modelled it. In fact, he goes on in this chapter to model it in perhaps one of the most extraordinary ways. It sort of shows that at the heart of the Easter story is this idea of complete self-sacrifice, complete servanthood to others. This is what Jesus does after this meal together. Him and his followers go out to a garden and he tells his followers to pray. And he goes on a little bit further to be more by himself. And he has this moment praying with God, knowing what is about to come, knowing that he's about to face one of the most painful executions known to man, knowing the darkness to come, knowing the hurt to come. And so Jesus prays. He says this, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. I mean, this moment where Jesus sweats blood, 
it was just to show this extraordinary amount of stress. It was something that's actually been known to happen among soldiers as they're about to go over the top in the world wars from the trenches. The capillaries burst in their face and because of just this immense stress, they sweat blood. And Jesus, knowing what is about to happen, knowing the sacrifice that he's about to make, he sweats blood. And he says, God, you know what? I'm not sure if I want this. And there's this moment where he's fully divine and fully human, fully God and fully man. I mean, that blows my mind enough as it is. But as he's praying, he says, you know what? Not my will, not the will of, of, of the person who's fearing pain, but your will, not me first, everybody else first. An extraordinary moment of love. Not me first, you first. And in the coming weeks, we're going to find out what happens afterwards. Many of us know the story of how he goes to the cross and all that that means. But right here in this moment and throughout all of his life, Jesus demonstrates a not me, but you first attitude. And think for a moment what that would look like in your life. I mean, if Jesus is calling us to live like that, imagine what it would look like if your house was known as the house that had a not me, but everybody else first attitude. I mean, imagine within your house as you're starting to live with uh, other people in close proximity for an extended amount of time. If everybody in your household adopted this attitude of everybody else first, me second. Imagine what it would look like if you're going around the supermarket for your shop and you have an attitude that says everybody else first, me second. I mean, imagine what it would look like when things start to normal again. If you'd use this time as a training ground to make this part of your thinking. Not me first, everybody else first, me second. I think in times like this, we start to recognize the power of this way of thinking. I mean, when there's a time of real need, all of a sudden things get put into perspective, don't they? I mean, the role of a celebrity versus the role of a doctor. I mean, it doesn't take much to recognize how amazing staff like the uh, those who work in the NHS are. People who really do put everybody else first and themselves second. We start to recognize them as real heroes. We start to recognize that this way of thinking that Jesus tells us to live really does hold a really high value. Not me first, you first, me second. One of the things that I found extraordinary uh, in uh, the last week or so is looking at the meaning of the word corona, as in coronavirus. The meaning of the word corona actually comes from a Latin word that means crown or garland. And think about who wears crowns. I mean, kings and queens wear crowns and they rule over their subjects, often bringing them to their knees. And isn't that exactly what this virus has done? It's brought countries to their knees, nations to their knees, governments to its knees. Healthcare systems to its knees, education, economies to its knees. This crown wearer, this crown virus brings people to their knees. Maybe it's even brought you to your knees and it rules with a sword of fear and anxiety. It forces people to think me first. But Jesus shows a different kind of majesty, a different way of living. Jesus, who wears a different crown, not a garland, but a crown of thorns that pierces his head, offers something different. 
He says, no, 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 I'm not going to make my subjects fall to their knees. I'm going to fall to my knees and serve my subjects. I mean, he literally does this. He literally kneels down and washes their feet. But also he kneels down. And for our brokenness, for our shame, he puts himself to defeat sin, to defeat fear, to defeat pain, to defeat illness, to make a way for redemption to come, to bring salvation. This was a different type of crown wearer, and he invites us into his kingdom. He invites us to live in this way. It's this way of choosing, this way of deciding, this way of thinking that really starts to change everything. That's all for this week. Thanks once again for joining us. We'd love to keep the conversation going, so why not check out Forge Church UK on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram? Or go online at forgechurch.com where you can watch other content, find a next step, give financially, or see any details of what's currently going on in and around the Forge. We're looking forward to you joining us next time.